How to Survive the Media Apocalypse, and Voice Control. It's not as big as you think. This is episode 75 of Media Unplugged, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom Asacker and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I'm Mark Ramsey. And I'm Tom Asacker. Tom, how in the world are we going to survive the media apocalypse? Do you know it's coming? I don't know. The way you even started off, how to survive the media apocalypse. It's it's like you should have said, how to survive the media apocalypse. (laughs) I'm a little more soft-spoken than that. (laughs) Especially, it's interesting because this article uh, references um, BuzzFeed, and yet it was written before BuzzFeed's announcements, I think it was yesterday, Mm -hmm. that they've got a, a layoff of more than 100 people. Um, so but it's, article, then. <laughs> I think I would have discounted this article a little bit uh, more if it hadn't been written by somebody who really knows what he's talking about. The author is Derek Thompson. He's a senior editor at The Atlantic, and he is the author of a book called Hitmakers, which is really a terrific book. And uh, so I took it for that reason with a little more seriousness. Here's the gist of it. At Vanity Fair, the editorial budget faces a 30% cut at The New York Times Ad revenue, ad revenue, just ad revenue, is down $20 million annually after nine months. Oath, the offspring, the wonderfully named offspring of Yahoo and AOL's union, is shedding more than 500 positions as it strains to fit inside the Verizon conglomerate. We talked about BuzzFeed's layoffs and so on down the line. Uh, Mashable is selling for a fifth of its former valuation, Yada, yada, yada. So many media companies in 2017 have reoriented their budgets around the production of videos that the so-called pivot to video has become an industry joke. Today, <laughs> the pivot seems less like a business strategy and more like end-of-life estate planning. <laughs> what in the world is going on here? Tom, before we get into his explanations, what in the world is going on here? I, I, like, how, I like some of the things that he writes. He's pretty funny. Um, listen, Mark, <laughs> this is... It was a matter of time. I mean, mm-hmm. we have talked about this over and over and over again, right? Consumers want, what do they want? Simple, they want fast, they want easy. They want one-stop shopping. They want free delivery. They want impulse, thoughtless consumption. And guess mm-hmm. what? We've given everyone smartphones so they can now get all of that at every turn. Mm-hmm. That's what's going on. I mean, if people they- don't see the connection between those two things... Then. Oh, I'm sure they do. Uh, and, and I think they have this weird imagination in which no other brands competing for scale exist other than their brand. <laughs> because, I mean, uh, his, his number one reason, uh, Derek's number one reason, uh, the explanation of what's going on, not surprisingly, there are too many publishers and not enough ad money. Well, you know, you can dicker with the terms too many and not enough. What you can't dicker with is that when supply rises dramatically and demand is constrained demand you know the demand of, of, right. of uh, for ad, economics uh, uh, right. space then <laughs> the value of that digital real estate declines dramatically and so you have all these guys competing for scale competing and, and all these guys optimizing for clicks which means they're competing for scale in the same you know, lowest common denominator way everybody else is. So before you know it, you have a million listicles and everyone reading the same listicle everywhere and no one caring about any of it. Meanwhile, Google and Facebook are cruising along, uh, as he writes, projected to account for about 61% of combined U.S. digital ad market. 
which is just a, a, astonishing. Look, um, it's simple. Look, it, it, nothing has really changed about supply and demand and value and, and scarcity. A brand has value, true value, mm-hmm. if people are willing to pay a premium for it or go out of their way to get it. And when I say go out of their way to get it, I mean make it a destination. So mm-hmm. can you monetize attention by selling that attention? Absolutely. That's exactly what publishers, because they were once the creators of this valuable content, but they mm-hmm. allowed Google and Facebook to become the destination. That's it. Yes, he, he, he actually makes that point in very colorful terms, so I've got to read that. He <laughs> said, Facebook and Google's dumb, and again, 90% of the growth in digital advertising is coming from just those two companies. Facebook and Google's dominance stems from one of the great arbitrages in media history. Publishers still bear the cost of reporting, analyzing, and, well, publishing the news. Facebook and Google cinch the bloated web into a straitjacket of vertical content known as results, pages, and feeds. In the process, they collect unparalleled information about the interests and aspirations of their users and profit from their roles as digital gatekeepers. I mean, that is just so true, isn't it? I mean, that is the distillation of what you just said. Yeah, but that's it. Look, digital attention is a very precarious thing. If you're, you know, if you're going to make a long-term bet on it, think about it. It's free, typically. It's not one of a kind because it's easy to steal mm-hmm. and repurpose all this stuff that you see all over the Internet. And like mm-hmm. you said earlier, it's simple supply and demand economics. So if mm-hmm. all the attention is flowing through Google and Facebook, how are you supposed to capture it and get somebody to move to a separate destination unless you have something truly unique? Right. Truly unique. And you can't and it's hard to have something truly unique and achieve scale at the same time because kind of the definition of scale is that which everyone can agree on, which automatically becomes less than truly <laughs> That's the truly unique. His second reason is that media companies accepted VC money. Now they're accepting VC reality. Absolutely. Uh, His third reason is, as he put it, Donald Trump is the ghost of Christmas future. And there he indicates that a lot of advertisers don't want their their advertising associated with any stories that surround Trump, which is hard to do when you're covering news. Right. um, Because almost everything surrounds Trump to some degree. He indicates, uh, and here's where he gets to the point, which is the Trump effect isn't all negative for digital media companies. Fear of and fascination with the president has supercharged an old-fashioned revenue source for news publishers, readers. Yeah, subscriptions, Sub- right? Subscription revenue has been, uh, has, has been record growth at the New Yorker and the Post. At the New York Times, revenue from digital-only subscriptions jumped 44% or $75 million dollars. In the first nine months of 2017, compared to the same period from last year, that's three times larger than the $20 million lost on advertising revenue over the same period, which is absolutely the business model of the Times and the Post right now. Right. In short, President Trump has pulled forward the future of news by accelerating both the decline in digital advertising and the rise of reader subscriptions. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's funny. We're talking about media but we could be talking about anything. I mean, the other day I was looking at, you know those whiteboard explainer videos? You've seen these yeah. things? Okay. Oh, yes. Okay, guess what? About 10, 15 years ago, I knew a guy who owned a business that created those videos. Mm-hmm. He charged, Mark, $10,000 a minute of completed animation. Mm-hmm. So fast forward to today, you go to this website, Fiverr.com. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. You can get a comparable <laughs> animated explainer video for 250 bucks. <laughs> I was looking through this website. You can get a hundred word professional voiceover for $10. Mm -hmm. The world is overflowing with supply, with talent, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the Internet's giving all of them platforms. I mean, this is, look, he concludes by saying doom is coming for companies that rely on an unlimited supply of VC money floating them until they mm -hmm. crack a non-existent code to advertising, <laughs> right? <laughs> but look, look, no one is going to escape this. I just read, and you, I know you, you're aware of this, that the second largest radio company in America just filed for bankruptcy protection. Yes, right? I happen to be aware of that. Yes, yeah, I do. And guess what? The largest is likely to file soon as well. So nobody's immune to this. No, nobody is immune to that. And I, so that sent me towards his solution. All right? right. And that's where he gets down to it. He said, the New York Times is leading the trend in 2000 circulation revenues accounted for 2000, by the way, is a million years ago. It's not uh, 17 <laughs> years ago. Circulation revenue accounted for 26% of its business. Last quarter, Cirque and online subscription accounted for 64%, fast heading towards 100%. He said, the near future of digital news may be as tumultuous uh, as the near past, but it's tough to imagine that readers and viewers will be ill-served by news organizations exchanging a fixation with breadth of scale with a renewed devotion to making a product worth more than zero dollars to its audience as he closed Pivot to Readers. And the one thing I thought about this, though, Tom, is can everyone necessarily follow the example of the New York Times and the Washington Post? Isn't there a reason why? The New York Times and the Washington Post or the New York Times and the Washington Post? Can the San Diego Union Tribune do that? Um, what about if you're not um, a brand in that category? And what if you're not a newspaper? What if you're trying to create other genres of information which are of value? Hmm. I mean, isn't it a lot more difficult than what he's implying? Uh, don't you have the problem? Because although there's tons of content and talent in ready supply, it's not all equally distributed, right? No, you're right. Look, it comes down, listen, this, like I said, this affects everyone, especially anyone that's trying to put information out on the internet for sale, or even to mm -hmm. get people to look at it, to take their time to look at it. Because if that person who's taking their time to look at something, and especially if they're gonna pay for it, and I don't care how much it is, if they don't believe that there's some expectation of value at the end of it, if there's something that they desire uniquely, that they believe they can get from you, they, they'll do it. But if not, my goodness, look at the free content that's all over the internet and YouTube and everywhere you go. Why should I spend my money on something that I can get anywhere? Well, you know, it, it was not that long ago that the newspapers were arguing that the fact that they were giving out all this stuff for free over the Internet was a big mistake because they were training to pe people to a price point of free. And increasingly, it's clear that that's correct. <laughs> no, that, I mean, in no, an that's... era when people are complaining yep. because the $2 app they bought hasn't performed up to their expectation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, we did this to ourselves. Absolutely true. My question for you is, what's the way out? Um, you've, you need to understand your audience, whoever that audience is, better than anyone else does. And you need to keep mm -hmm. giving the audience, feeding them with whatever it is that's going to 
solve their problems, fulfill their desires. You cannot look at yourself as simply a company that provides information. You have to look at yourself as we're a company that solves our audience's problems, that fulfills their desires. And you're, you're going to need to go broad. So you might lose a bunch of mass, but what you're going to be doing is you're going to start appealing better than anyone else to to that audience that you've decided to appeal to. I don't know what the other way out is. This is, this is a problem as old as branding and marketing, right? Because ultimately what you're saying is deliver uh, something unique that satisfies the needs and wants of your audience, something unique and distinctive that's best in class, best in the world, right? That's what will make people pay for it, a premium that justifies its existence on the planet, right? Exactly. Like I said, pay a premium or go out of your way to get it. If, if people aren't doing that, it's not really a valuable brand. You are listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Asacker and Mark Ramsey. Voice control, it's not as big as you think, but maybe it will be one day. This is from <laughs> our friends over at Media Village. Uh, a really smart article, I thought, by a guy named Tom Goodwin, um, who uh, is a, let's see, vice president, head of innovation at Zenith, which Tom, I believe, made TVs back in 1975. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not sure exactly what he's up to now, but uh, the title of the piece is Hear What Voice Means for Brands. So this is really a brand-centric uh, piece, but this touched on a bunch of frustrations I've had and I suspect you've had, and we're going to talk about it. If a picture paints a thousand words, he writes, how long will it take for Alexa to reel off my flight search results? <laughs> mm -hmm. Is that better than seeing them on my screen? To understand what a technology means for society, business, and brands, it's vital that we understand its limitations as well as its profound new possibilities. Voice is a naturally fast and sometimes magical way to input information, but as it currently stands, it's not always the best means of getting, uh, to getting valuable outcomes. This is so true, Tom. Have you not had, you've got Alexa, I've got Google Home, have you not had some just really regrettable, disappointing experiences in your interactions with Alexa? Yeah. Look, Mark, I'm telling you what's going to happen. I, see, I think it's actually much bigger than what he thinks. Because, because, look, he writes that reality, what did he say? The reality is that for most people trained in the old way, voice is hard and the payoff not great. That's right. But even though right now it might seem that way, I also never expected to have a female voice give me turn-by-turn -turn directions while I was driving my car. But I do now, right? And... So I think you've got to have, like, just a little bit more imagination. It, it, well, but, 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 Tom, there's a, you just used an example where the payoff really is quite great. I mean, how many times we used to have the, uh, the Thomas's Guide here in Southern California. And, you know, you'd have to buy, you move to California, you've got to buy the Thomas's Guide. It's right. got to sit there somewhere in your car. And then the only way to use it, because it's a million pages long, right? and you got to figure out what your coordinates are. It was just a nightmare beyond nightmares to navigate in Southern California um, back in that era. So this solved a huge problem for people trying to get places. And I, I think his point is that in the short run, that it's not so clear what the payoff is. I'll give you a, a for instance that relates to me. In addition to my Google Home, I've also got um, Philips Hue uh, bulbs and some of the lamps okay. around the living room. Yep. So I'm I'm fishing around for something in the the uh, one of the drawers and there's a lamp right above it right so there's a lamp I'm telling you 2 feet from me <laughs> but there's no switch on the lamp Tom 
because it's operated through the Google Home. So I have to turn around and I have to shout over to the Google Home, hey, Google, <laughs> turn on the lights in order to get the light right in front of me to go on. And then if it's not bright enough, I have to say, hey, Google, turn up the lights. No, now, I, I Tom, hear you. All I have to do is reach up, turn the knob, the light is on, and I can solve my problem without going through all this rigmarole. Oh, and I it's hear even you. I hear it's you. even worse <laughs> if I say, "Hey, Google, order some mouthwash," and then I've got the problem. Well, does Google really know what kind of mouthwash I want, or how much, or what size, uh, or what? You know, you're lacking <laughs> imagination too. Look, all of this, all of this has to do with context, right? So. I mean, he says that it's, it's not a faster way to get a pizza. Listen, that depends. If I'm driving home and I say, you know, I think I'll get a pizza, and I decide to order and pick up a pizza, am I mm -hmm. going to pick up the phone and dial? Am I going to pick up the phone and start pushing buttons? No. I'm gonna, while I'm driving, I'm going to say, order a pizza. And, mm -hmm. and, and the thing will come back and say, what do you want on it? This, this is what's coming. It's going to happen. Or, or let's say you're driving and you're bored and you say, uh, hey, What's, what are the most popular business books right now? You know, and then the answer comes back, all of Tom Asaka's books. No, but say the, <laughs> the answer comes back and it, and, it, and it starts listing them for you, right? The one-hour work I've... week, whatever. And you say, oh, stop. Read the introduction. And it reads it. Then you say, okay, order it. Download Audible right now. The ver this is stuff is coming, I'm telling you. We have to be fair to this guy because he <laughs> makes a very clear distinction. I want to make, make sure we, we get to his distinction which addresses exactly that because he says, look, we need to take a, both a short and a long-term look. He said, Amara's law, I'm not familiar with Amara's law, but apparently that's the one that says short-term effects of technology are often overstated while long-term impact is often underestimated. And that's what he's saying here. He, he's saying that these projections that Gartner thinks that by 2020, 30% of searches will be done without a screen and, and that the connected speaker will be the fastest adopted product ever. He thinks those are overstated. On the other hand, he said, look, the, it's not about voice. It's about AI. It's about artificial intelligence. Of course. And you will certainly acknowledge, Tom, that the state of AI today is not nearly to the point where those requests you just illustrated can be properly satisfied by simple asking of questions into your digital device, ah, they're right? Coming, they're coming, Mark. I'm, I'm of telling course you, they are. But this is of the, course they, they're they, coming. But they're coming faster than you think. I'm going to tell you something. This is what's going to happen. Next year, after the holidays, mm -hmm. you're going to be sitting on your couch, and the jeans that you purchased in August are going to be strangling you because of all the food you ate for the last few months. But you love those jeans. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to say, Alexa, buy those jeans again, but with two additional inches on the waist size. <laughs> and these things are just going to show up at your house. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I hear that. And he's, he's, he's acknowledging that that's coming. I think he's skeptical that it's happening quite as fast as, as you're saying. Although I think we all know it's coming. The other thing he made a point of that I think is important is to say, look, recognize that <clears throat> just because... Um, you can order those genes. The question is, what brand of genes? So there's still the problem of kind of awareness, recognition, brand value, all those other things. There, the brands still matter in this universe, in other words. And there's, you, you're still going to need a way to kind of know about these brands, recognize these brands, be aware of these brands, care about these brands, recognize the distinction of these brands, see the image, the mental image of yourself in these pants. 
And uh, as a result, the importance of advertising and marketing will uh, remain. Even, oops, you're skeptical. Let me hear it. I don't know. I, I, I'm going to be sitting around and I'm going to be saying, I need detergent. And I'm going to say to the speaker, what detergent's Mark Ramsey buying? And they're going to say, he's buying Tide. I said, well, get me some Tide then because he's probably checked out the price and everything. I, I'm just telling you, there's going to be so much information out there. <laughs> That you're going to be able to just say, what has the highest rating and the lowest price right now for detergent on Amazon? It's going to say, blah, blah, blah. And you're going to say, Listen, buy it. The, the <laughs> problem with that is in your part of the world, all the clothes you're going to get are going to come from L.L. Bean. <laughs> so. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's time for rants and raves, Tom. You have something good this week? <laughs> well, this is, believe it or not, this is a rave, but... Wow. It sounds like a rant when I start. So that's a little twist. <laughs> so did you hear that as part of Spotify's effort to diversify, you know, its streaming music platform, you can now mm -hmm. buy makeup on their website? No. Uh-huh. So you all, we all know that they expanded into merchandise sales last year, right? They partnered up with Merch Bar. So they sell artists' T-shirts, posters, bags, you know, vinyl records, you know, other okay. accessories. So you have a profile page if you're an artist, and you can sell these things right there on the page. But this new offering is an expansion of that partnership, and it allows fans to what they call shop the look of a particular artist by buying, oh, like, perfect. lipstick, eye pencils, other cosmetics. So right now, it's an experiment, and they're doing it with um, Texan pop starlet Maggie Linderman. So she has 7 million fans listening to her on Spotify. Mm -hmm. So Spotify's partnering with Pat McGrath to offer beauty products in this innovative way to connect their artists directly with the fans in the place where they already go to enjoy their music, which is Spotify. Mm -hmm. I think this can be huge, and I'll tell you why. Celebrity endorsements, especially trying to reach younger people, millennials, it's huge. So imagine if Spotify can act as kind of like the artist's trusted partner, and then they go do deals with brands, and then those brands' products show up on the Spotify profile pages of the particular artist, and then fans can just click right there on the page, buy the mm -hmm. product without leaving the site. Mm -hmm. uh, like I said earlier, right? One-stop shopping, free delivery, impulse purchase. I think this is really smart move and eventually a big big win because the key to growth and we always talk about this and frankly to not being a competitive sitting duck is to keep moving keep experimenting solidify relationships expand broaden your appeal and so i think that that's a a really smart move and you're going to see this over time we're, we're going to talk about this more with spotify that sounds great and that's also kind of that whole notion of you know, you're here for a reason, and it just expands the value proposition to people who are here and want that product anyway, so you don't have to go searching somewhere else. It's kind of the, the Amazon thinking applied to Spotify, right? Exactly. And guess what? You don't have to go to, like, their Shopify page and worry about putting in your information and all that, because if you're used to doing that on Spotify, if they get you doing it and feeling comfortable and safe, why not stay there and do it? That's right. That's a good point. Um, yeah, I love that. That's a great one. Okay, I got a couple. I know you um, And I always try and have a couple, as you know. Um, <laughs> these are both related, though, and they're, they're both in the theme of those who forget history are condemned to repeat it. Mm. 
Um, the first is kind of a rave, and the second is definitely a, a rant. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> so um, I happened to see last night the new movie, The Post. This is the Steven Spielberg movie about the Washington Post um, and the publishing of the Pentagon Papers back in the early 70s. It opens at the end of December, and uh, I got to see it last night. And it's, yeah, first of all, it's really good. Um, it starts slow, I would say, but it finishes very strong. And, of course, you're going to hear a lot of buzz about it because, of, because pretty much everybody who's anybody in Hollywood is in it, number one. And mm -hmm. number two, it's Spielberg. And right. number three, it opens at the end of December for a reason. That's not a coincidence. Um, but, in terms, but the thing about it is he has a way lately, I think, of picking movies which are built for the zeitgeist. And this particular one is not only positioned for an era where we're doubting kind of the value and veracity of journalism in a democracy, but also it addresses the role of women in society because there's Catherine Graham, publisher of the Washington right. Post, in a world of mostly old white men. In fact, the cast is almost entirely older white guys and Catherine Graham, um, played by Meryl Streep, quite well, as you would expect. Um, so those two things, I think, really make it unique. And I think if you see it pushed towards Oscar contention, it's really going to be because this is the movie people wish were real now. <laughs> <laughs> right now. The role of women in society. There's a scene in the movie where um, they have a, you know, this is not telling, this is not spoiling, this is history. But they win their case and they're able to publish the Pentagon Papers. And she's walking down the Supreme Court steps and she's, surrounded by and you know the the guys from the new york times are giving the news conference and there's throngs of reporters and people but Catherine graham is walking down the steps off to the side no one's really paying that much attention to her but she's thronged by women just nothing but women i mean and you can see this is like a kind of a subtle in a spielbergian way mm. um way of kind of communicating that all these women on the the steps of the courthouse, uh, of the Supreme Courthouse, are thronging Catherine Graham because she is kind of alone, the symbol of women in society and what a woman can do in society. It's really, you know, not that subtle, uh, but nevertheless quite uh, powerful. Uh, so I think you're going to be seeing a lot more about that. And it's clearly, I will say, the best ad for the Post since all the president's men, flat out. Um, so look for that one in movie theaters at the end of December. Interesting, the second one, interesting timing, don't you think, though? Considering how long from beginning it en to end it takes to actually bring a movie to the big screen? It is, but I think this moment has been, I, you know, I think you could feel this a couple years ago. Okay. So I, I'm not altogether surprised. I, I, what was interesting to me was relative to this, you know, this Alabama Roy Moore election. I was thinking, gosh, are they going to release this movie in advance of that election? Right. Um, and the answer is no, because Oscar is much more important than politics. Right, exactly. So um, the second one, again, related to this theme of those who forget history are condemned to repeat it. Um, you know, Tom, we haven't touched on news from the world of wax museums oh, lately. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> How did I know this was coming? <laughs> so this is from CBS News, and the title is Selfies Wax Museum Hitler Exhibit Sparks Outrage. 
And sadly, I wish I could say this were funny because it's really not. But this is from Indonesia. You won't see this in, in you know, in New York. Um, the teenagers smile as they take selfies with a heroically posed Hitler, apparently unaware that the giant backdrop to their happy moment is the Auschwitz-Birkenau extermination camp where more yeah. than a million people were exterminated by the Nazi dictator's regime. The infotainment-style museum is defending the display as, quote, fun for teenagers. Now, this is in Indonesia. Human Rights Watch denounced the exhibit as sickening in the Los Angeles-based Simon Wiesenthal Center, which campaigns against Holocaust denial and anti-Semitism, demanded its immediate removal. Behind the waxwork is a giant image of Auschwitz and the slogan, Work Set You Free, that appeared over the entrance, appears over the entrance to Auschwitz and other camps where millions of Jews and others were systematically killed during uh, Germany's wartime occupation of much of Europe. Uh, the Worley, the marketing officer for the museum, who goes by that one name, Worley, <laughs> said he was aware Hitler was responsible for mass murder, but defended the waxwork on display since 2014 as, quote, one of the favorite figures for our visitors to take selfies with. Oh, man. Quote, no visitors complained about it. Most of our visitors are having fun because they know this is just an entertainment museum, he said. Worley hadn't heard of the Wiesenthal Center, but said he'd discuss its demand to remove the display with the, with the building's owner um, and management. Quote, we will follow the best advice and response from the public. He said, let people judge whether the character is good or bad. Tom, it's all situational. <laughs> Just let people judge. Let people be the judge, right? Right. Let the audience tell you what you should let be doing. Let the audience tell you because it has because nothing Because they know, to do right? With- there's, it's all situated. There are no absolute rights and wrongs. There are no absolute true or falses, and there is no such thing as history. So there you have it. News from the Wax Museum. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I think the less said about that, the better. You're I think it's, it right. speaks volumes. That's Media Unplugged for this week. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher in spite of what you just heard. And while you're there, please rate the show. It helps other folks discover us. You can also catch us at art19.com, Radio Inc., Media Village, and Google Play Music. You can follow Tom on Twitter at Tom Asacker and Mark at Mark Ramsey Media. Send us your questions and comments using hashtag Media Unplugged. If there's a media topic you want us to cover, tweet us. Occasionally people do, right, Tom? Uh, Last week. There you go. (laughs) Catch up on older episodes at our website, MediaUnplugged.net. Special thanks to the one and only producer of Media Unplugged, the incomparable Jeff Schmidt, who has been with us now for 75 episodes. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Exciting audio for Media. You can find him, and you should, at Jeff-Schmidt.com. For Tom Asecker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thank you for listening.